Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. Tonight's lesson, tonight's word is count the cost. So I'm going to start by asking, how many Christians would you say that we have in the church? Less than 10%. Less than 10%. How many disciples would you say you have in the church? Uh, you, know, you know what's the church? Like, I'm looking at the prayer meeting. You know? Yes. The ones going to the prayer meeting, the ones that are... Yes. And that's, that's what I thought, too. I thought, well, you know, I think most people would consider their Sunday morning crowd, for the most part, Christian. You know there's some that aren't. And then you would consider your Wednesday night crew and your prayer crew your disciples. That's, that's kind of the way we think about it. So go to Mark 16, verse 15. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about it. Mark 16, verse 15 says... And he said unto them, this was Jesus speaking to the disciples, this was after his death and resurrection. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth, believeth what? The gospel. Because we can believe a lot of things, but it doesn't imply unless you're believing the gospel, because that's what he's talking about. The gospel of Jesus Christ, not just any gospel, the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not doesn't believe the gospel, the Bible. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Believe what? The gospel. What's in the Bible. Not just anything. These signs shall follow them that really believe what the Bible says, what Jesus said. In my name, in Jesus' name, they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere. They went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs and wonders. This is a amazing passage. It does not apply to most people that go to church, but it should. Because if we truly believe, all the conditions are here. He said, if you believe, but you have to believe what Jesus actually said, what the gospel said, then signs and wonders will follow you. Now, why does it not follow everybody because they're not fulfilling the entire criteria the only reason the signs and wonders are following you is so that you can what make disciples if you're not out there actively laboring to make disciples you don't need the signs and wonders why would he give them to you for their tools they're tools for the harvest and if you're not actively harvesting he's not going to give you the tools for the harvest he's going to give them to a person who's actually going to use them for the harvest so a lot of people will say, well, I, I don't see miracles. I don't hear from God. I'm not getting this. I don't see these signs and wonders. If you go out and invest your time and your energy and your faith into actually making disciples, you will see signs and wonders. You will see miracles. You will see things happen because he will give you the tools. If you're preaching the gospel, if you're preaching the true word of Jesus Christ, he will validate it. 
See, this is after he left them. And at the end of it, he says, even though he had just left, he had went back into heaven. It says that they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs to follow. He will confirm his word, not our word, his word, the gospel. He will confirm it. So if we truly believe what he said and we preach what he said and we live what he said, he will confirm it by doing what he said. And it's that simple. The whole point in that passage is that the commandment was given to go out and make Christians. No, to go out and make church members, to go out and make disciples. There's a couple of reasons that a lot of people don't really see this. We just named it mostly. They're not really out trying to make disciples. Another reason is because, remember in James, it says that you ask and receive not because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lust. Some people are asking for gifts and signs and wonders just for their own glory, just to put on a show, to consume it upon their own lust. They want the attention. They want to feel powerful. God doesn't give it for those reasons. Your heart has to be right in the matter. Remember the, uh, the man that wanted to pay the disciples to impart to him the ability to lay hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit. And he said, your heart's not right in this matter. You need to repent. A lot of people's hearts are not right in the matter. They're not willing to count the cost to really take the anointing on. There is a crushing. We've talked about that before. That is required before the, the anointing will flow. If we truly believe the gospel, if we are willing to go out and work to make disciples, followers of Christ, and if we preach what's in the Bible, signs, wonders, and miracles will follow. Everyone in this church has seen signs, wonders, and miracles because we've decided that if Jesus said it, we believe it, going to live in it, going to walk it out, and we're going to try to help others to see it and teach it and preach it, and we've all seen the miracles and the signs and the wonders that follow. So we can attest that this is true. Now I want you to jump to Acts 11, verse 25. It was funny because we were with a whole bunch of older preachers the other day in Baton Rouge. And, uh, you know, they were talking about, we, we need to see the real church rise up again. I mean, seriously, when's the last time you could say you saw somebody raised from the dead? Ain't nobody here ever seen that. And I'm like, I did. They're like, when? I told them the story about when mama prayed for the guy in the hospital uh, years ago. I, I I'll tell it again in case somebody didn't hear it, but 2008, when Daddy was in the hospital for his first bypass, there was a, a family in the hospital room next to him, and the, the man died. And the family come out screaming and crying. The doctors had pronounced him dead and left the room, and, and the family was just wailing and screaming and crying. And Mama was like, oh, no, the angel of death's not coming that close to us. She was worried about Daddy. She started rebuking the angel of death. Few minutes later, one of them comes out the room screaming, He sat up, he's alive, he's alive. The doctors all ran back in, the whole hospital was running in. We were, we were practically still kids at that point. We were like, Cool, mama's prayers. <laughs> it's true, we've seen it in Miss Shirley. She prayed her husband back from the dead three times. He died, and she prayed, and, and God raised him. And you know, signs and wonders do follow those that believe, and they happen every day. We just don't go around gloating about them sometimes. You forget them. You know, honestly, I forgot that thing about mama praying that back for years until the Lord brought it back to me. And it's like, you know what? That was a genuine miracle. And we don't even see the miracles in our own lives for what they really are, you know. But it, when you see others that don't see it, then you begin to realize how miraculous 
the world that we walk in is and how everybody else could walk in it if we just all decided to believe. Because it's all about faith. Now, in Acts 11, 25, remember that Jesus' commission, his commandment to us was to go out into all the world and make disciples. And he gave us the tools and the equipment to do it if we were willing to believe and do it the way he says. And then we go to Acts eleven twenty five, and it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that the whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And this is where we realized that I asked you a trick question. Because we started with the question, how many Christians do we have in the church and how many disciples? And we all have this um, perception that we have both. And that the core group or your disciples and the regular church group or your Christians, in actuality, you cannot be a Christian and not a disciple. Because Christian was just another name for disciple. First there were only disciples and then they changed the name to Christian. So here's the sad reality. All the people that we put in the category of Christian but not disciple, they're actually not Christian. They're not even saved. And we're going to see that in scripture. It's a sad thing, I know. Kind of blew my mind too, but here we go. Christian is disciple. Remember that in Jesus' time, he never mentioned Christians at all. He always talked about disciples. If you want to be my disciple, do this. If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. So anytime Jesus said disciple, we can replace that word with Christian because the word disciple in Antioch was changed to Christian. So anytime you see disciple, it literally means Christian. There is no distinction or differentiation. We make one in our minds, but biblically there isn't. And so... We dive in and count the cost. Go ahead and open to Luke 14, verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, this was Jesus speaking to the multitudes, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sister, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now let me explain that. When he says hate there, that's a, a translation of a word that is meaning that if you don't count everything and everyone else, else of no regard in comparison to your obedience and love for Christ. Now we're not commanded to hate anyone. We're supposed to love even our enemies. The literal translation of the word used there means to detest. And so when anybody stands in opposition to God in our life, no matter who it is, we need to detest that opposition. Now, we love the person, but we still have to detest that there is opposition there. We have to count that opposition of no regard in comparison to our obedience to Christ. So even if it's somebody that we love, if they're telling us to go have an abortion and God says, no, don't do that, obviously, we have to choose God's side no matter who it is no matter who it is. If somebody is telling you to sin or to do something that is against God's will, we choose God's side no matter what. 
we pray for the person in our heart. We love the person, but we have to detest the opposition. We have to not have any agreement with it. And truthfully, the Bible says that we have to love God first, and then we love everybody else, and we worry about ourselves last. So we are commanded to love everybody else, but we can't love them until we first love God. Because if we don't have God's heart for them, then anything we do towards them is going to be with selfish agenda and selfish motive. It's not going to be in a heart of true love. If you put your heart to obey God and to help others, God will always take care of you. And that's a biblical principle that you can stand on. He will always take care of you. That's why he says to humble yourself and he will lift you up. Humble yourself and he will give you more power. If you put yourself last, then God will pick you up and put you first. So Christ is giving a clear mandate here that when he tells us to do something and when he gives a word and his word is specific, we have to take his side and obey it no matter what it costs us. Even if the people that are closest to us hate us for it, even if the people that are closest to us come against us for it, we always choose God's side. Or he says we cannot be his disciple and these are the things that we have to realize in the opening of the lesson that we come to terms with the reality that when Jesus said disciple he meant what we call Christian because there was no Christians the word disciple was changed to Christian all right and it continues to say and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple so if a person will not bear their cross and come after Christ, they cannot truly be a Christian. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Jesus was telling the people, I'm not placating it. I'm not sugarcoating it. I'm telling you like it is because I don't want you to step into this, start proclaiming to be my disciple and, and taking my name on and then realize the cost is too high and quit. And it brings shame and reproach upon you and upon me because you carry my name. So we have to remember that we need to be vigilant to count, tell people to count the cost and to explain to them the cost before we try to bring them into salvation. We've all seen those times because when we do communion, we give the, you know, the warning that the scripture says that if you're not worthy to take of communion, it can bring a curse upon you. So if you're not ready to make that commitment to Christ, it's better to not take it. And there's always, usually only one or two, usually teenagers that don't come up and there's always some old hypocrite up there saying, no, come up, it's okay, come up. I have more respect for the teenager that had enough fear of God to say, I'm not going to fake it, than for the hypocrite that's up there that you know ain't living the life and is telling them it's okay, come do it. And God does too. God has more respect for the person that has counted the cost and said, you know what, I'm not ready yet, I'm not going to bring reproach on your name, than he does for the person that's just going to pretend and make everybody else look like a hypocrite. He continues to says, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. In other words, this is a war. This is a fight and you're going to be outmanned and outnumbered in the physical. There's going to be a strong enemy that's coming against you. 
you better count the cost because he says, or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. In other words, he's going to compromise. When the enemy comes up against you, if you don't count the cost first and the, the real battle starts, if you haven't decided I'm all in, even if it costs me my life, no matter what it costs me, you're going to end up compromising with the enemy. He got scared. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Insert Christian. Cannot be a Christian. We tell a lot of people that they're Christians that are not Christians because they are not nearly willing to forsake all. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And we've talked about this before, but you know, when, when we come to know Christ, we come up to that altar and we say, God, I believe in you. I love you. I want to serve you. We get that salvation and we have that experience and a lot of people have that experience, but not being told the cost when the cost begins to come and God starts saying, I need you to give this thing up. I need you to go do this. I need you to let that friend go. I need you to cut this out of your life. At some point, some of us even not knowing it in advance are willing to cut those things off. And Miss Liz is a good example. She's cut off a lot of things out of her life as the Lord has revealed, and he will do that. He will continually throughout our life reveal things to us that are going to take us deeper. But most people come to that point where they're like, no, I'm not letting that go. I want that. I'm not ready for that. And at that point, the Holy Spirit departs because he can't take you any further. We're not in agreement. We're not in alignment with his will. We're not in submission. And that's why he said that you'll start building the tower and then you'll stop and then people are going to laugh and mock because they're going to see you didn't make it. So count the cost before you get in it. Are you willing? Are you ready? You can break this down into two different things. The first part talked about you have to not be concerned with what anybody says, including your own family or the people laughing and mocking at you. And the second part talks about you have to be willing to fight the fight. So you can break it down into two things. There is a cost, there is a price, and I rest assure you that two of those costs are going to be that people will hate you and hell will hate you. If you are truly a disciple of Jesus, people will hate you for it and hell will hate you for it. There will be opposition. That is a cost that you have to count and be willing to accept and deal with. I've never gone into any assignment or mission in my life that God hasn't already warned me in advance. Nobody's going to receive you. They're going to hate you for it. They're going to reject you for it. You're going to be despised. You're going to be slandered. You're going to be, you know, talked about. You're going to be crucified. You're going to be character killed. But stick it out. I'll vindicate you in the end. And I'm like, okay, sure, thinking that's going to be like a two-week process and I'm going to be vindicated, you know, and then it's usually like a two-year process before he vindicates me, you know, for that whole time everybody thinks I'm crazy. But you stick it out, he will eventually validate and vindicate. But he takes you through a process. So that's a cost that we have to be willing to pay. There are going to be people that aren't going to like you. And hell is definitely not going to like you. There will be opposition. You have to understand when you go into this thing, 
that you are going to have to maintain a state of no offense and no compromise. The first segment dealt with a person who fell away because of offense. The second segment dealt with a person that fell away because of compromise. People will rise against you. Don't let it put offense in your heart. Jesus was our example of that. He never had offense. And even while being crucified, he was praying, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. That is a cost of true Christianity. We cannot tolerate offense in any form, no matter what is done. And we cannot compromise. Fight the fight. Stand for truth. If it costs you your life, if we have to go back to reading the Book of the Martyrs, we will. No compromise. If we fail in those areas, we aren't his disciple. And he has mercy and patience while he's teaching us these things and bringing us through. But once he shows it to us, we got to deal with it. You have to be willing to give up everything to obey his voice, even our very lives, without offense or compromise. No matter what he tells us to do, we've got to be willing to lay it down. And he's not going to tell every person to lay everything down, but whatever he tells you to do, you've got to be willing to lay it down. And if he tells you to lay everything down, that's what we have to do. All right, Matthew 16, 23. We're going to break this down a little bit more. Matthew 16, 23 says, Jesus had just explained to them or, or uh, expounded to them that he would be crucified, which he did many times, but the Holy Spirit kept them from really grasping it. But at this time, it seems like they did kind of grasp it because Peter replied to Jesus that, no, it's not going to be so. You won't be crucified. You're not going to die. And Jesus replied to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So Jesus knew that in Peter's heart, the devil was getting him to look at earthly things because Peter didn't want Jesus to die. He loved him. He was his friend, but it was also his ministry. It was his, his platform, and he didn't want to lose that, and so Jesus tells him, your mind is on earthly things, but what I'm going to do is going to have eternal significance. It said, what I have to do is eternal. And so he knew it was the devil causing him to say that, so he rebuked it. And Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So Peter was wanting Jesus to stay because he loved him, yes, but also because there was an idea of prestige and power that went along with being a disciple of a rabbi being in this group with this great minister who was doing <clears throat> doing all these miracles. And so Jesus says, look, you're worried about physical things. What I'm doing has weight in eternity. If you really want to be my disciple, you have to give up everything that you want in this life. Fame, fortune, title, notoriety, attention. You've got to be willing to deny yourself everything you want and follow after my example. He said, if you're willing to lose your life, you'll gain it. But if, you're will, if you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. We look at it in the physical like martyrdom, and it does apply. But there's something deeper being said right here. 
If you look up the word that's translated to life, it's the soul. The soul is our mind, our will, and our emotion. That's the part of us that says, I want, I think, I feel. I feel like, I, like this, so this is what we're going to do. I think we should do it this way, so this is what I'm going to do. I want this, so this is what we're going to do. That's the soul. It's, it's selfish. It's the part that is, is your mind, your will, and your emotion. So we can shrink that down and sum it up by just calling it our will. It's what we want done. I will. So what he's saying there is that those that are willing to give up their will will save their soul from hell. But those that try to keep their will will lose their soul in hell. Your desires, your lust, your your dreams, your ambitions. Yeah, your plans. You can think of it like your plans even. This is what the cross really represents. When he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me, it's the death of your will. It's the crucifixion of your logic, your will, your emotions, your lust, your personal desires. It's laying down your life. It's not physically dying, though for some it encompassed that, but it is literally saying, you know what? Not my will, Lord, but your will be done, whatever it is. Your plan. I don't want to live in this town, but if you're telling me there's somebody you want me to reach here, then I'm going to live here. I don't want to work that job, but if you're telling me to go there because you have a reason for it, I'm going to go there. I don't want to go minister to that person, but if you're telling me to go, I'm going to go. Whatever he says to do, however he says to do it, his will be done. That's the cost of Christianity. That's why we have to trust him. That's why we have to believe him because he has a plan and a purpose, but we have to trust that it's better. If we were going to sum this up, we could say that the true cost of Christianity is your will and nothing less. If we're not willing to give up our will, we cannot say we are a disciple. He said, you can't be my disciple, which means that we can't be a Christian. So if anyone is not willing to give up their will, they cannot be his. Now, God in his mercy will take us through seasons of our life where we go through strippings, where he's trying to get us to see that our will is not that great. That he'll let us walk out the consequences of our own decisions in mercy to let us see that it's really the devil tricking us. Because in actuality, there's God's plan and there's the devil's plan. God's plan is good. The devil's plan is bad. It says that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes to give you life and to give it more abundantly. Our free will is the choice to choose which plan we're going to follow. If we choose God's, it's going to be the best plan for us. It's going to bring life and it's going to bring it more abundantly. But if we choose to reject his, then by default, we're actually choosing the devil's plan. We might think it's our will. We might think it's the way we want. We might think it's our plan, but it's really just a trick of the enemy. It's always the devil's plan. Anything that's not God's plan is something that was planted in our mind from the enemy. So the best thing for us is always to choose God's side. But the devil tricks us into thinking this is your idea. This is the best way. This is going to be better for you. This is going to be easy for you. This is going to be fun for you, but it's always a lie. Like Abigail said that night, even if he tells you something nice, don't believe it. He's just trying to trick you. <laughs> yep. So it's not like God is, is, is even being like controlling or judgmental. He's trying to save you from the path that's going to lead to death and destruction because he knows better than we do. So we look at this thing, the soul, and we can take it back to the place of first mention. The first time that it's ever mentioned, because we're looking at how he says that if you're willing 
to lose your life, you'll save it. But if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. So we want to get back to the first place that this is mentioned so we can see that life literally relates to the soul. When we go to Genesis 2, verse 7, all the way at the beginning of the book, Genesis 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we had God formed the physical body out of the dust of the ground. That's the physical body that we have. And then God breathed the breath of life, which is the spirit, into us. When spirit met flesh, it created a soul. That's where our souls come from. Souls are not from earth, and they're not from heaven. They are literally the creation of the merger between spirit and flesh. Jacob, look up that word soul in that verse and tell me what the original Hebrew word for it is. Nefesh. So, the spirit of God came into the physical form of a man and he became a living soul, nefesh. Nefesh is the word for soul in the Hebrew. You can also look at it as like the body. The body is made of dust of the ground. So you can look at the body as like the dirt, the spirit that God breathed, like the seed or the root, and the soul that's produced is like the fruit. So God's divine seed or divine spirit, his divine root, produced a soul that in the beginning was good when it was planted in the dirt, the ground. Now, we could go way down the rabbit hole of when the evil spirits came and how it started to produce evil souls and evil men, and you can kind of see where the problem came in. Where spirit and flesh meets, it creates a soul. And the soul is going to be indicative of the root, the spirit. So the soul is really the fruit because the soul deals with your character, your mind, your will, and your emotion. But once that old evil spirit is removed, and you get, that's why the Bible talks about those that have The seed of Christ can't sin because his seed is in you. If his spirit is in us, it will influence our soul to do the right thing. So that's a big rabbit trail we're not going to get on right now. Go to Leviticus 17.11. Leviticus 17.11. And now I'm going to show you something that's going to explain a lot in scripture. Jacob, you can go there in the Strongs. Okay. Remember that in Genesis... The word for soul is nefesh. In Leviticus 17.11, it says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. In the Old Testament, because sin brought death, it could only be atoned for by blood, but we never really understand why. When we look that up in the original Hebrew, Jacob, when it says life, what is it in the Hebrew? It's nefesh. Nefesh. So what this verse really says is that the life of the flesh or the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Soul in some places translates to life because without the soul, you have no life. When you die, the soul departs. So where does the soul reside? In the blood. The soul is in the blood. It was the soul that sinned in the garden because it was their will, their mind, their emotion that chose 
to rebel against God. The soul sinned, therefore the soul must die. Therefore only blood can make an atonement because the soul is in the blood. It's a soul for a soul. He poured out his soul that ours would be forgiven. His soul paid the price for our soul's sin. His will for our will. Our will for his will. He became us, we become him. He took on our sin, we take on his righteousness. We get a new spirit, a new soul, and then we can do God's will with our physical body. That's what true reconciliation is. So, life is equated to the soul. It says that the life is in the blood, but the real word there is soul. The soul is in the blood. So, the soul is in the blood. Why is the soul in the blood? Because God breathed the breath of life into the physical body and it became a living soul. What is the purpose of the blood? It's to carry the breath to the different members of the body. And that'll preach. Because Jesus brought the blood that then enabled the Holy Spirit, the breath, to be carried to each member of the body. But in our body, the breath literally travels through the blood to the members of our body. So if the breath is spirit... And in the Hebrew ruach, it was breath, it was spirit, it was wind, it was these things. It literally travels in the blood. So biblically in the Hebrew, the soul resided in the blood. So the soul is where your will is. Go to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Now this was a prophetic word about Jesus' crucifixion. This is why the pouring out of blood is the only thing that can atone for sin. Jesus poured out his blood, but listen to the way that God spoke it prophetically in Isaiah. He says, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He poured out his blood unto death, but the word prophetically he gave here was that he pours out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, equating the blood to the soul. This is why the Bible emphatically says, Old Testament and New, that we're not supposed to consume blood. You aren't supposed to eat blood. And this is also why every witchcraft and occult has these rituals of blood consumption. Because they already know this and they believe that when you consume blood, you are taking in that animal's soul or that person's soul or it's getting in more demons or whatever because those are just disembodied souls. And so every form of witchcraft and occult encourages the consumption of blood, but the Bible says do not do it. There is a reason for it. That also makes sense when God told Cain that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. His soul, his soul that his soul was crying out, cried from, out from the ground. That makes it makes a better connection. Blood can't, you know, you think blood's not crying out, but his soul makes more oh, sense. Wow. That is good. Okay. So if the life is the soul and the soul is in the blood, then giving up your life to save your life really means giving up your soul in this life to save your soul in eternity. Remember, it says that Jesus came to save our soul from hell. Our soul to be saved in eternity, we have to be willing to give it up. And of course, again, that translates to our will. So if you're willing to give up your will here, you will save it for eternity. But if you hold on to your will, if you hold on to your soul, if you hold on to that here, you're going to lose it for eternity because you're going to lose it in hell. 
Jesus came to save our soul from hell. You don't have to turn there. It's just one verse. But Matthew 10, 28 says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And this is one of those things we question about, well, you live forever, how you can't be destroyed. The soul, not the spirit. The spirit lives forever. But the soul is destroyed in hell. Why? Because you have no more free will. You have no will in hell. Your soul is destroyed. Your will is destroyed in hell. And if you're willing to give it up now, you'll save it for later. And he's going to give you freedom in eternity because he'll be able to trust you with that freedom and the power of the kingdom. But if you prove now that you're not willing to surrender and submit, then he can't trust you with that power in eternity. So you're going to lose it in hell. You will have no free will in hell. That's a terrible thing. So lose your life to keep it. The soul, the life, the will, it's all the same thing. All right, go to 2 Peter 2, verse 9. 2 Peter 2, verse 9 says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise governments, which that word means authorities. They despise authorities. They don't want to be in submission or subjection to the authority of God presumptuous or they self-willed underline that word self-willed so this is describing ungodly men ungodly people these and and this is actually describing people within the church these people are within the church because it says that they are spots in your feast of charity but they are self-willed and they are evil in god's eyes they despise the authority of god They're presumptuous. They are self-willed. So do you have a will? Yes, if you can be self-willed, then yes, you have a will. This is the danger of the teaching that tells you that everything is God's will and you have no free will because if if the entirety of our salvation is based on us being willing to give up our will to walk in God's will and you are being told that you don't have to make that choice because you have no will, God's will is complete, and you're going to walk in it whether you want to or not, then you're being taken away the the mandate for salvation. The whole point is to give up your will for God's. Jesus made a way for that to even be possible, so it's not a work salvation. His blood atoned that we could even be brought before the throne of God in the first place to offer up this free will offering. Without Christ, we would not have the ability to even offer that will we would not be able to go before God and say yes I choose to lay down my life for you Jesus made the way he is the way he's the only way his blood is the only atonement for sin that can get us into the holy of holies but we still have to choose once we get there to walk that narrow path we still have to choose once we get there to lay down our will or we cannot be his disciple we could read on but we're not going to for the sake of time because it just continues to describe the characteristic of these people who, though they are part of the church and are in the church, they are spotted with sin and they bring reproach upon the name of the church because they have not laid down their will. They are self-willed. And it continues on towards the a little few verses down and it says that they forsake the right way for their own way. They forsake God's will 
for their will. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it real quick. Isaiah 5, 14 says this. Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp and their rejoicings. Those that rejoice shall descend into it and the mean man shall be brought down and the mighty man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. And this just proves that you will be humbled. Everyone will be humbled. Give up your will now or lose it then because those that are prideful and presumptuous and arrogant and mean and proud when they're cast into hell, they will be humbled and God will be exalted regardless. Choose to exalt God now that you aren't humbled then. All right, so who is saved? According to scripture, I'm going to hit a few quick uh, one-liner verses so you don't have to turn there that just proves the point. Who is saved? Matthew twelve fifty says, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So all these people that are saying we are all children of God, well, that's not actually biblical. Jesus said the only ones who are the children of God are those who are doing God's will. And in Matthew seven twenty one, we all know it. It says, Not every man that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, or that professes him as Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. So according to Jesus, the only ones who are actually saved from hell are those who are doing the will of the Father, which is in heaven. Jesus made sure that people knew that their will was the cost of Christianity and never allowed anyone who wasn't willing to fully lay it all down to believe that they were saved. We do an injustice, and I, I don't mean us because we, I think we do a pretty good job at explaining to people the cost but I say we as in the church in general does a great disservice to people in letting them think that all they have to do is say a prayer, but they can continue doing everything they want to do the way they want to do it and think that they are Christian. Jesus gave us the greatest example of this to make sure we wouldn't be confused when he gave us the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he was obedient to the law in every area Except for one area, Jesus wanted to show him there's an area that you're not willing to lay down your will. Because he had great possessions, it says. He was wealthy and he had great possessions. And he said, are you willing to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor to come and follow me? And he wasn't willing. So Jesus didn't say, well, it's okay, we'll work you to it. You know, we'll, we'll teach you in these other areas. It, he let him walk away sad. He told you cannot be my disciple because this is an area where you're not surrendering your will. As soon as we come to an area in our life that God points out and we're not willing to surrender our will on it, he's not going to sugarcoat it or placate it. The Holy Spirit withdraws. Now he may, in his mercy, bring us some correction and some judgment, hoping that we'd be willing to let that thing go or whatever it is, but he's not going to work around our resistance to submit to his will. God might want to restore everything back, but he wasn't even ready to try. Right. Whereas Abraham, who was willing to set his son up there, mm -hmm. he didn't take his son, but he was just willing to do it. That's right. So, if, are you just willing? Right. And then Peter, you know, when Jesus 
what Peter told Jesus, well, what about us? We've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus told him, there's no man that has given up house or property or wife or children or any of these things, job, that won't receive more in this life. It'll come with persecution, but you'll receive more back and in the kingdom to come. God will always repay what you're willing to give up, and he'll give it to you better. He'll give it to you more. You'll get a greater reward for it, but do you trust him? Are you willing to give up your will to trust his that he can do better than we can do? So it's not all gloom and doom, but it's a step of faith. That's why we're saved by faith. We have to believe and trust him, give up our will and do what he says to do in all things. The rich young ruler was a great example of that. He let him walk away. And I think we're not willing to let people walk away from the altar sometime when maybe we should because they're not ready, they're not willing. Or are they really willing? And, and I think that the way God deals with most people is there's a dealing with them through their life. I think that God works us up to a place, but there comes a point where he says, come and follow me. And at that point, we have to choose to lay down our plans, our will, our life, and go and follow him or reject it. You know, so we need to make sure that people understand in advance what they're really doing because it does more damage than good to let them step in halfway and then fall out. It does more damage to God's name and to their faith. We come to the cross to die, to give up the ghost, just like Jesus, and to receive a whole new spirit. You can come to the altar at salvation. You come to pour out your soul on the altar to the Lord. Now, Jesus' sacrifice takes away the sin. We understand that it's the atonement. But he gave his life so that we could then give ours he was our example. We give it as a free will offering. We pour out that soul, that old spirit, that old that ghost, and receive his spirit. We receive his will. We come to the altar to give up our will, to crucify our will, and choose to take on his. If a person is not choosing to crucify their will and take on God's, they're not ready yet. If we're not willing to give up our will, we can't really say that we're saved if the Bible says that only those who do God's will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is the cost of biblical Christianity. We can no longer say, I think, I want, I feel. We can only say, God says. Lose your life, your soul, your will, and you will save it. That's why narrow is the way and few are they that find it, because very few do the Father's will. Really, the narrow way is Jesus. It's God's will. It's God's way. He is the way. We have to choose to walk in it. So I'll give you a really quick example that will bring this home in the importance of it. I'm going to go ahead and embarrass Josh because he's now the preacher's kids, and that's the job of the preacher's kids is to be made an example of. <laughs> I got it all my life. It's not bad. But really it was a situation that, that came up with Josh that God began to show me this and, you know, we're all learning this together. So Josh was in a, a situation that was a little bit dangerous when, when he called us to go get him. And so we're thinking, we're going to save him. You know, you're just, your thought process is, you know, go get him, save him, bring him to the house. He's in danger. Bring you, swoop him up. And so we did all that. Well, you know, here we are a few weeks into it, and he's asking Danny if he can go to a birthday party and spend the night. And so Danny has to sit down and have this conversation and lay down the law, you know. <laughs> Let's have a talk. This is what it costs to be part of this family. 
because we are pastors. And he had no opposition to it. He understood it. But God was showing me something through the process. And I'm listening to this. And and this is what it costs because we represent God. We represent the church. What people see us do represents God and it reflects on them. So now what people see you do reflects on us, which reflects on the church, which reflects on God. So if we preach against it, you can't do it. If you live here, you can't, you know, you can't drink, you can't do all these things or whatever. And it hit me when he said it. I was like, well, you know what? We did that wrong. We saw in danger, we ran in, and we saved. And then we laid down the cost after. When in actuality, when he called, we should have said, we're coming. We'll do it. But this is what it's going to cost to be part of this family. Now do you want to come? And I believe he would have done it either anyway, but he would have had a pre-notion because now the opportunity is there for the enemy to put resentment. I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't know I was going to have to give this up. I didn't know I was going to have to change everything. I didn't know this. There's resentment as the law is laid down. And God was showing it to me in the example of we need to lay the law down first when we bring people into God's family. This is what it's going to cost. Because when you bring them in, you just see them in danger. You know they're good, that you want to run in and save them, and you bring them into the family. And then you have to sit down and, and you start laying down the law. And for some people, they're like, okay, that's, it's a price worth paying. But for many, they get resentful against the law. Well, I didn't know I was going to have to give this up. I didn't know I was going to have to change this. I didn't know my life would be different. Because everything that I do now reflects the family that I've become a part of. We become a part of the family of God and everything we do reflects on our father and on our family. We need to lay the law down first and then ask him now. God's here to save you. God wants you to come. We're right here. We'll be there in a second. But do you want to come now? It's not fair to the person. It wasn't fair to Josh to not know how much different his life would be being part of our family than anything else he's experienced before. He should have known in advance. We don't know what we're doing. We're all stepping. But God was showing me the parallel through the situation as to how important it is for us to lay the law down and let people count the costs first. I think they'll be more willing to stick it out because they'll have an understanding going into it of why these things are going to be stripped from our life, why we're going to lay these things down, because we now no longer live for ourselves. We live for God. We live for others. We live for the people. We are an example unto others. Everything we do is in absolute selflessness. We can't think of ourselves anymore. We have to think in every decision and action that we make. We have to think about how this is going to reflect on our father, our new father, and our new family. We need to learn to think that way, but we need to learn to express that to people before we take them into the family and let them count the cost. And there's a prize. There is a prize. It's not all cost, but there is a price to the prize. There is joy. There is peace. There is power. There is reward on the other end of it. It is the better option, and we do need to give them all of that hope and that truth, but we need to give it to them with the understanding that the prize will come at a price. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to count the cost? And I believe that if you're diligent to lay down the cost, even if they count it too high and reject it, they understand. And then when they go back out and go back to those things and it turns out badly, then they have an understanding in their heart. This is what God was saving me from. Maybe I need to go back and surrender. 
But when we don't ever tell them that it needs to be laid down, they think they're saved. They haven't given it up. Things are still turning out badly. They're like, I'm so confused. None of this works. I give up. Even Jesus told his disciples that all of these things would happen to them, that people would you know, persecute them and hate them and all that. He says, I tell you it now so that you won't be offended. And, you know, it's not so much that they wouldn't be offended at the people, I think. It's that he was saying that you won't be offended at me because I'm warning you in advance this is just how it's going to be. But there is reward on the other end of it if you're willing to give everything up and trust me. There's going to be reward. Um, we're about to close, but I'm not even going to read it. But in Philippians 3, Paul talks about how if anybody had any reason to glory in the flesh and be boastful, it was him because he had all of these credentials and all of these degrees and all of this pedigree. And he was he had so much to be proud of. He said, but I've counted it all as dung that I might obtain Christ. I gave it all up. I gave up my degrees, my pedigree, my my positions, my pomp, my jobs. I gave it all up that I might obtain Christ. I count it all as dung. And so we come back to the cost of discipleship or the cost of true Christianity, and it will cost you everything. But when everything is equated to dung to you in comparison to Christ, then everything becomes a very small price to pay. Paul said he counted everything but Christ as dung. Jesus said that if you aren't willing to give up everything, then you aren't worthy to be used even on the dung. Because if you won't give up everything, then you can't change anything. Paul said all of this stuff of the world, it's dung. Jesus said that if you're not willing to give up everything, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You're salt that has lost its savor and you're not even useful in the dung. Because the dung, the salt was used to salt the dung to kind of petrify it, get the smell out. and all. They would throw the salt in the dung. Jesus was saying you're not even useful for that. So we're not even useful in the things of this world if we're not willing to give everything up. So if we're not willing to give up everything, we're not going to be able to change anything. But if we're willing, if we're willing. A true Christian, a true disciple, a true ambassador of Christ changes things. Because you've heard me say it before, even though God never changes, everything he touches does. Therefore, the mark that something or someone has truly been touched by the hand of God is that it is changed. We are changed, and everything we touch should change because everything God touches changes. The world has lost faith in Christianity because they see so little changing because we're not laying the cost out so that true decisions can be made. Those true decisions are made, you will see change. And people will say there's something real there. It's better to have five or six truly changed on fire for God people in your church that are turning the world upside down than a thousand counterfeits that think they're changed but really aren't. They're salt that's lost its savor. They can't even change the dung. They can't even change the world. That's the word for tonight. For us individually, we have to count the cost daily. And most of those that are here on a Wednesday night really have counted the cost. We didn't know in advance maybe that we were going to have to, but as God brought the price, we were willing to pay it. But I think it would be more effective in our evangelism if we understand that we need to lay the price down. That's why Jesus said, go 
give them the truth, preach the gospel, make disciples, and all these signs and wonders will follow after you. But he also said that if they don't receive that truth, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Don't stay there and try to make them. Don't try to drag them to the altar. Give them the word, give them the truth, and move on until somebody is willing to pay the price and receive it and then disciple them, then work on them. Stop discipling unsaved people. Give the gospel, give the price. If they're willing to pay it, get them saved and then disciple. And you can't give everybody the entire exhaustive list because the list is going to be different for different people. There are some things that are on everybody's list. Right. But we can still give them the understanding from the beginning that it's going to cost your will. You really have to be willing to lay down your plans and desires and say, Lord, whatever you want. So if he tells you to do something, then you have to lay down your will and do it. But it may not be something that he's telling somebody else to do. And that's where a personal conviction can become law against somebody else. Because we can start thinking, well, God told me to do this, so this is how it is, and this is how it's always going to be, and you all have to do it too. There are some things in Scripture that's obvious sins that that applies to, but then there are also those personal convictions that we just have to lay down individually. Because sometimes God does call somebody to be a businessman to finance missionaries. So maybe he's not telling them to give up their business. But maybe he's telling this person over here, I never called you to this business. You need to let that go and go on the mission field. Depends on what the idol is. He'll point out your idol. Count the cost. Count the cost. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.